Amen. Thank you, Hassel. Let me turn over to Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing our study through the book of Matthew chapter 6. And I just want to read verses 5 through 8 for us this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Jesus says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do or the pagans do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you need of before you ask Him. When we come to these, this section of our study through the Gospel of Matthew, as we indicated before, Jesus is basically touching on three things here. And uh, three religious practices in the life of, of, of anyone, really, who is, is somewhat religious. But here in, in mind, he specifically is uh, talking about the religion of the, 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 uh, the Jews of the day and how that they uh, think because of their religious exercises that somehow God is going to like them more. And um, he talks about giving in verses 1 through 4, and we talked about that, and we should... Uh, give as unto the Lord, not just to be seen by men. And he follows that same outline through the whole thing. He gives us a warning and, and so forth. Um, and here we come to prayer, and then he closes off the section in verses 16 to 18 with fasting. And so there are basically three religious practices that he's addressing here, and it was very common in the day of Christ, these three religious practices. And so he kind of pulls them out and uh, calls them to task on how the religious hypocrites of the day uh, perform these tasks. Now, when it comes to the subject of prayer, there's a lot of things that we can't, I would say, necessarily understand. There's a lot of things when it comes to God we don't understand. Um, and there's always been, and there probably always will be, kind of two segments of theology that deal with uh, God. And one says that God is totally sovereign. He's completely in control of everything, which we believe that. And But that extreme view of that sovereignty basically says that God will work according to His perfect will regardless of what we pray about. I mean, even whether we pray or not. So why even pray? If God's sovereign, who cares? He's got everything planned out. Aren't we just like little robots down here? The other side is the opposite extreme. And it basically says that through our prayers, we can largely determine God's will. That's the other extreme. And when you look at both of those extremes, you say, well, what's the biblical view? Um, see, on one hand, prayer is simply a way of lining up with God's will. We pray and we just pray that God lines us up with His will because we know His will it never changes. And on the other hand, the other side says, well, no, we need to pray to God and we need to ask God 
to do things that he would otherwise, otherwise wouldn't do if we didn't ask him. And the Bible basically is very clear on both of those things. Um, the Bible is clear about God's absolute sovereignty. We know that. We see that over and over again. That God is in control of everything. That God has a plan. He has a purpose. But it's also equally kind of boisterous in declaring that within God's sovereign will, He calls upon us as His people to go to Him in prayer. To help to ask for His help and guidance and power and provision in different ways, mercy, forgiveness, all those things. And so on one side, you kind of have a, a view that says that God is in complete control. And if you take that to the extreme, you can end up very quickly with a fatalistic attitude toward life. Why do anything? God's in control. He's going to have His way. Who cares? If I'm praying for a lost family member, why should I even pray? If the Bible says God chose him before the foundation of the world, I can't change that, so why even pray for him? On the other hand, you have the extreme that says, no, we manipulate God. And it boils down to a very man-centered theology. And you have to be careful when you're dealing with certain things that we don't claim to know more than what we do. Uh, the Bible provides both sides of that argument in certain cases. But it boils down to God simply commands us to pray and to obey the principles for prayer in His Word, which He's given to us. Now, you might say, if God's sovereign, why should we pray? And uh, this guy, Stans Evers, came up with basically five reasons. And I think you have to stop and you have to say, well, what do I mean by God's sovereignty? What does that mean? What does it mean that God is sovereign? Well, basically, a real quick definition is God rules, therefore He knows and He plans everything. He is absolute in authority over everything. That means that He knows what we will pray about before we even pray. <laughs> the Bible says that. He also knows what we need better than we need, than we know what we need. Um, and so when we pray, He has already planned... <laughs> And get a hold of this, the answer to our prayer, even though it may not be what we want. He knows how our prayer fits into the plan of our life, into the plan of our family's life, into the plan of our church life, even into the plan that He has, His divine plan for the whole world, because He knows everything. So God sees how our life and our prayers fit into the plans, into from eternity past all the way into eternity future. Because with God, there is no time. He transcends time. So everything with God is right now. It's happening right now. So the sovereign God knows at a glance all events, past, present, future. He knows everything. I mean, just think about that for a while. That's hard to get a handle on. He rules and therefore He has chosen the saved, it says. We read that this morning in the psalm. And he planned that Christ should die for them. See, the, the, the plan of the cross wasn't a backup plan. It wasn't like, well, I'm going to put Adam and Eve down there in this perfect garden and see what happens. Oh, no, they messed up. What would you eat the fruit for? Now i got to, oh, let's see, what do I do? Jesus, okay, you got to go down there. And No, it, it didn't work that way. God, before, you know, in eternity past, had chosen Christ to be the Savior of the world. 
not a, God doesn't react to what we do because He is sovereign. And you might say, well, if God rules and if all the stuff you're saying is true, aren't I a mere puppet on a string in the hand of God? And He just kind of moves me around makes me do whatever He wants me to do. Sometimes I wish it were that easy. <laughs> Don't you? It'd be a lot easier if we were God's puppet. We'd never sin because God would never cause us to sin. We'd never do stupid things because God's not a stupid God. I mean, think about it. We'd live a perfect life if God were our puppet master and we were the puppet. But you know what? That's not how it works. Uh, God gives us choices within his will. Um, the Bible teaches that we are responsible for our actions. And so you can see the tension growing as, well, God is sovereign, and yet, yeah, we make choices. How do you put these two together? I don't think you can. That's what makes God God and us man. Um, because the Bible does clearly teach that we're responsible for our actions. And in First Peter, he says, Be holy, for I am holy. That's a command. So there must be a choice whether or not we want to be holy or not. Once we become a Christian, we don't, he doesn't just automatically, we just, our behavior doesn't become holy every day. I wish to God it would be, but that's not how it works. We're still trapped in this body. We still have the, the voice of sin and the flesh kind of shouting in our ear and the voice of the world all around us. And at times, we choose not to be holy. That's just the honest truth. To know that God rules and is sovereign, I don't know about you, but that brings comfort to my heart. To realize that God isn't up there reacting to what we do down here on earth. That He has, before the foundation of the world, planned things out. He has a purpose. He has a plan. He's a thoughtful God. Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that all things, what? God works together for those who are, uh, love Him and are, have been called according to His purpose. All those things have been worked out by God. It's not just luck. It's not just chance. I mean, you can even say when you have an automobile accident. You know what? In the mind of God, that's not even an accident. He allowed that to happen for whatever reason. And the Bible over and over again teaches God's sovereignty from Ephesians all the way through the New Testament, basically, and even in the Old Testament. So that's God's sovereignty, that He's in control. Well, what is prayer then? What is prayer? It's not easy to define prayer, but in Psalm 62, 8, it says, Trust Him at all times, O people, pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. You know, when you stop and think about it, you know, that's kind of what prayer is. It's pouring our hearts out to God. Now, to do that, you have to have some kind of confidence that He's going to hear you, right? Have you ever been with somebody in a conversation and they're just not listening to you at all? And you're trying to talk and they're just, just not listening. After a while, what do you do? You just kind of give up. Yesterday, when I was down at seeing Jerry, he didn't have his hearing aids in. I mean, I was hoarse by the time I left his, my visit, literally, because he's just almost stone deaf without his hearing aids. And I remember saying certain things to him, and he'd be, what, what's that? And I'd say it again. And like the fifth time, you know, I was like, you know what, Jerry, forget it. You know, it's all right. Because it's like he can't hear. 
So it was kind of ridiculous for me to keep on shouting and repeating. And, 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 and sometimes that's our view of God. Why don't we pray more? Well, we think that God's too busy or we just think God doesn't want to be bothered or whatever. Well, the Word of God says that we need to trust in Him at all times. We need to pour our hearts out to Him. He's to be our refuge. See, so many times we make, you know, worry our refuge. Something happens in our life and what do we do? We immediately kick in the worry starts and, and, and we start worrying about things. And God's saying, hey, don't do that. You don't need to do that. Don't you think I'm in control? Why would you worry if you know I'm in control? Um, it's, it's so so important. I mean, think about it. If you were to go and get on an airplane and the pilot came out and said, hey, I just want to let you know, um, I don't even have my license yet. You know, I'm still in school, but they, they, this is part of my training. So, hey, I hope we have a good flight. And uh, this is my first takeoff and landing. And, uh, you know, I've never even drawn, flown a little Cessna, anything, but I'm sure it'll work out. And he goes back in the cockpit and locks the door. I guarantee you that whole flight, you're going to be worrying. You're going to be worrying. Why? Because you're looking at this person as somebody who's not qualified to fly this airplane. You don't. Most of us usually. Some people still worry and when they get on planes, that's fine. But most of us realize, hey, you know what? These guys are qualified. And we take it on faith that they've gone through the training and they've passed all the tests and they know what they're doing up there behind that door. And see, sometimes we treat God like the unqualified pilot. We think, ah, you know. But He is totally qualified to be our God. He wants us to pour our hearts out to Him because He wants to be our refuge. So we come to the question, if God is sovereign, then why should we pray? There's basically here five reasons that this guy gave. He says, first of all, because God commands us to pray. Because He commands us to pray. Colossians 4, 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful and thankful. That's what Paul wrote. And that's just a small smidgen of Scriptures that say the exact same thing. And so you have to say that if God commands us to pray and we're not praying, what are we doing? We're being disobedient to God. Even though we don't understand how our prayers fulfill God's will, the Bible says it's our duty and it should be our delight to pray. It shouldn't be a drudgery. And yet, the prayer meeting in any church is always the least attended meeting. Why is that? Could be because of disobedience. We're failing to fulfill God's command. Secondly, because prayer proves that we have a spiritual life. This kind of hits home. See, you have to understand that when somebody says they're religious, okay, they're, they're talking about usually a church they attend. And religious people basically, what they end up doing is they end up saying prayers. That's what I did for 19 years of my life. I said prayers. Our Father, who art in heaven, how be thy name, and kingdom come, and will be done on earth, and heaven. Give us the day, daily bread, give us the trespass, we give those trespass, because please not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, for grace, Lord, is with thee. Bless the Lord, thou. I can go through it just like that. And I used to do it every night before I went to bed. God bless Jimmy and Bobby and Susie and Mary. I have this thing down. It's just a mantra that I repeated every night, did it religiously. Because I knew it was the right thing to pray. But you know what? I didn't have a spiritual life. And my prayers were just things that I said. 
See, Christians know who they're praying to. Christians actually pray. It's a communication. It's not just something you recite. It's kind of like when someone has a newborn baby. What's the first thing generally that little baby does? Cries. If it doesn't cry, there's something wrong. And if it doesn't cry for a certain amount of time, there could be a sign that there's no life there. See, prayer is like that for Christians. It should be. Prayer is a sign of life. It's a sign of spiritual life. You remember when you first became a Christian, you're all excited and your sins were forgiven and you were just out witnessing and you're, you're praying about everything. You were constantly praying. Because you were excited. You had this new relationship with the God of the universe and you thought, man, this is incredible. You didn't know any doctrine. You didn't even know maybe how to pray or whatever. Maybe you didn't hear about God's sovereignty and human responsibility and all this other stuff that kind of goes in the mix of theology. And yet you pray. Jesus speaking to his disciples here in Matthew verses 5 to 7, chapter 6, he says, when you pray, notice. He doesn't say if you pray. It's a God-given thing that you're going to pray. The true Christian will pray. Thirdly, not only because God commands us and it proves that we have a spiritual life, but prayer expresses our dependence upon God. That's what he says in verse 8. He says the Father knows what you need before you even ask. It expresses our dependence upon God. He wants us to talk to Him about what we need. Isn't that great? And He doesn't have to go... You know, to the checkbook and say, ah, you know what, sorry, I can't give you that this month. I don't have enough money. <laughs> he owns cattle on a thousand hills. He's, it's incredible. He, he has all the resources that he created at his disposal to meet our needs, if they're within his will. But he wants some conversation along the way. It's kind of like the kid who, who kind of, you know, runs up to dad and says, can I have a candy bar? Oh, sure, here. And then they're gone. Or dad, can I have allowance? And they're gone. They don't have any relationship outside of what they're getting from their, or their earthly father. That's not a good relationship. God doesn't want that kind of relationship. He wants a relationship where, you know, we kind of come up and spend some time talking to him. And then eventually kind of let him know what our needs are. Wayne Gruden, who's a theologian, in one of his books, he wrote this, Prayer is not made so that God can find out what we need. I wish most prayer meetings would understand this. Because, to be honest, most prayer meetings in churches today are telling God what we need, as if he doesn't already know. God wants us to pray because prayer expresses our trust in God and is a means whereby our trust in Him can increase. In fact, perhaps the primary emphasis of the Bible's teaching on prayer is that we pray with faith, which means we trust or we depend upon God. That's good. He wants us to pray because He commands it. He wants us to pray because it's a sign of our spiritual life. And it also expresses our dependence upon God. Fourthly, God wants us to pray because it fulfills some of His plans 
through our prayers. I thought you said God is sovereign. I did. God in His sovereignty has chosen to say, you know what? I'm going to have this plan fulfilled, but I'm not going to have it fulfilled except through the means of prayer. See, God has decreed, A.W. Pink said this, certain events that will come to pass. But He has also decreed that these events shall come to pass through the means He has appointed for their accomplishment. Here then is the design of prayer. Not that God's will may be altered, but that, uh, but that it may be accomplished in his own good time and way. See, you have to understand, when we're talking about God's will, there's, there's many facets to God's will. There's God's decreed will, which will never change. doesn't matter what you pray. And you might kind of say there's God's desired will or intended will which maybe could change. Within his sovereignty, it could change. The idea that someone would be in heaven who doesn't trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that's something that's been decreed by God. You will not go to heaven unless you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins. That's in stone. You can pray all day long for someone and you could pray the prayer, you know, God, just accept them even though they don't know your son and, and I still want them in heaven. You could pray that to your blue in the face. God will not answer that prayer. He will not change His decreed will concerning certain things. But we find a troubling thing in Exodus chapter 32 where because of the, the golden calf and everything, basically God get tick, got ticked off with the people and He says, I'm going to destroy the Israelites. And what happens? That was His intended will. He said, I'm going to destroy you. And what happened? Moses stepped up to the plate and he pled with God to spare his chosen people. And it says in verse 9, Then the Lord relented and He did not bring on His people the disaster He had threatened. Did God change His mind? I don't think so. God can't change His mind. To change His mind, there would have to be something wrong with His mind. <laughs> and God's mind's infinite. But somehow, in God's sovereignty, He allowed the pleading of Moses to change His intended will, which was to destroy them. And He ended up sparing them. See, if you don't believe that God moves through prayer, then why would we pray at all? It would seem kind of a weird thing for God to tell us, okay, i got everything worked out, but you're going to go down there and just, because I command it, pray. That would be kind of a dry prayer life. But God sometimes can and is moved by our prayers. Not to change His mind but to ultimately carry out and fulfill His will. Fifthly, because we pray, our wills are brought into harm. When we pray, our wills are brought into harmony with God's. See, this is true too. Uh, Mark 14, 36, our Savior prayed, not what I will, but what? But what you will. He, he, what he, he prayed that same prayer. He said, hey, I don't want to go to this cross. I'm going to do it out of love, but if there's another way. But you know what? It's not about me. It's not about my flesh. It's not about me suffering and understanding all this is going to take place. I'm willing to go ahead and do that. It's about what you want, Father. If you want me to do this, this is what I'm going to do. He was always willing to do what God wanted him to do. So prayer does not change the sovereign, decreed will of God, 
but it does change and it has the ability to change us so that we're kind of brought alongside of what God desires. Both things are true. And if you ask me to, after church to explain this, I can't. That's just what Scripture teaches. But here we see in, in verses 2 and 4 of Matthew 6 that Jesus kind of exposed their hypocritical giving. Then he moves into the area of prayer, which was another religious practice that they did. And he says, when you pray, don't pray as the hypocrites. Remember the hypocrite, somebody who put a mask on and he's, he's acting as if he's somebody he's not. He's an actor. Now, the Jews were very faithful at prayer in variety, in a variety of different ways in their life. Uh, God spoke directly to Abraham and they felt a responsibility. They were, they were to handle the oracles of God. And no other nation on the earth has been favored by God as Israel. They had direct communication with them on occasion. And of all people, they ought to understand how to pray. But they didn't. And like every other aspect of the religious life, it was corrupted by their teaching and by the rabbinical teaching and their tradition. And you might even say that most Jews were even completely confused about how to pray as God wanted them to pray. William Barclay, in one of his commentaries on Matthew, he points out a number of things that crept into the Jewish prayer life that basically drew it away from what God intended it to be. The first thing he said, basically prayer became ritualized. It became ritualized. The wording and the forms of prayer were set. The rabbinical teacher said, okay, if you have this problem, then you need to pray this prayer. And rather than just going to God, you would have to get the piece of paper and say, okay, this is the prayer for the, uh, you know, uh, the harvest of the beets, so we need to pray this prayer. Or this is the prayer for, you know, to get a new donkey. We've got to pray this prayer. I mean, that's how it came down. It came down to this ritualized little book that they had, and this is the prayers that they would go through. And a lot of times they would just memorize them. And a lot of times they could be given without even paying attention to what was said. You know, for years in the Catholic Church, I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm ashamed to say this, but... As an altar boy, up to I was 19, and finally when I went to Bible school, I was in an apologetics class, and they were talking about Catholicism, they were talking about some of the prayers they prayed. For the first time in my life, I think I was 21 years of age, I realized that I was praying wrong in the Catholic Church. I was praying, instead of saying, Hail, H-A-I-L, Mary, all these years, I have been praying hell, Mary, H-E-L-L. -L. Didn't even think about it. Didn't even register. Why would we say hell, Mary? That doesn't even make any sense. Nope. Just boom. I would just, just learn it and, you know, just by rote. Obviously, I didn't learn it even by reading it because you would know that. You know, somebody teaches it to you and you just phonetically start going through this thing. And I thought, wow, all those years... They would have kicked me right out the front door if they would have known what I was praying. But that's the point. It's just this ritualized thing and it just became kind of like a semi-conscious thing. You just go through these exercises. 
In, in the Jewish life, they had the same thing. They had the Shema that they say early in the morning and again at night. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They turned that into kind of a uh, just a ritualized prayer. And there was various other ones that they would do. And there were certain times that they would do it. And they were very religious about it. But it was just, you know... And you can even see that over in the Middle East today. You know, certain times of the day. Religions of all kinds just stop. And they just start reciting things. Well, the second fault, he said, not only did they become ritualized, but he goes on and he says... The second fault that crept into the Jewish prayer life was the development of prescribed prayers for every object and every occasion. I kind of already touched on that. But they had a prayer for everything. The third fault he mentioned was the practice of limiting prayer to specific times and occasions. In other words, you weren't encouraged to pray all the time like we are in the New Testament. You just prayed at certain times. There's nothing wrong with having certain times to pray. I'm not saying that, but... It's, it's more of an attitude. When you understand what prayer is, it's an attitude that you have before God. The fourth fault, he said, was that they esteemed long prayers. They believed that a prayer's sanctity and effectiveness were a direct proportion to its length. <laughs> so the longer you prayed, the more you were, God would appreciate and maybe give you an answer. Wouldn't you like to be in some of their prayer meetings? See, a long prayer, on the other hand, is not necessarily an insincere prayer. There's a lot of occasions in the Bible where uh, people pray for a long time. But when you're doing it for appearance sake, or when you're doing it just to get something from God, that's, that's faulty. Fifth faulty mentioned in the Jewish prayer life, and it was singled out here in verse 7, that there was this meaningless repetition patterned after what the pagans used to do. And you stop and you remember Elijah on Mount Carmel when he, uh, the, the prophets, they, they called out on their pagan god Baal. And it says they called out from morning until noon. And they said the same thing over, O Baal, answer us. And they went out, it's just, just over and over and over and over. And their god never responded. See, in the Jews of Jesus' day, they began to kind of use that kind of a repetitious thing. We're going to talk about what that word means when we get to it. And they just thought, well, the more we say it, then God will answer. It's almost like He didn't hear us the first time. And then it was almost like a competition. You can see how that would turn into, you know, who's praying the longest, who's using the most repetitions, who's praying for what. And, you know, you had all this kind of Garbage going on in the name of prayer. But by far worse of all, what he pointed out was the one thing that, that, that was worse than any of the things that we mentioned was that they used prayer as a means of building themselves up, their self-righteousness. So their whole purpose in praying wasn't to address God, but their whole purpose in praying was to be seen and to be heard by other people especially their fellow Jews, so they could look at them and say, oh, you know, look at how religious that person is. And we see that over and over again with their religious practices. And it was all about their glory and it was taking away from the glory that God desired through their prayer. 
And so he says, when you pray, because you're going to pray as believers, when you pray, don't be as the hypocrites. Prayer that focuses on self is always hypocritical. Does that mean you don't pray for your own needs? No. There's a time for that. There's a place for that. But if that's all you're praying for, you know, if you're not spending time in just adoration and, and praise and worshiping God, that's prayer too. The focus of every prayer we pray should be focused on God, not ourselves. And so there was this righteousness that they would gain as a result of people seeing them praying in front of other people. And Jesus is saying, hey, that's, that's not, this isn't the time nor the place to be concerned about yourself. And I think it's important to note that, you know, when, when we address God, that's where our focus should be. It should be on the Savior, on God. Um, so those things basically kind of point us in the direction that Jesus is going. Now, it says there, when you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues. That was a very common practice for them to, to pray. They would usually stand when they prayed. Matter of fact, you see them over there in front of the wall praying and they're standing. Sometimes they're kneeling or laying prostrate, but usually it's standing. That's how their normal position of prayer is. And, uh, you know, the synagogues were basically, obviously, the most appropriate place for them to pray. And that's where they would offer up their public prayers and things like that. Uh, it was a place where Jesus, or where the Jews worshiped most often, things like that. And so they had a, a very um, common place where they would go and pray. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's not even, <clears throat> it wasn't necessarily even uncommon for them to pray in the streets, as he says there, in the synagogues or on the corners of the streets. That wasn't an uncommon thing. It's not an uncommon thing today over there because when the time comes, because remember, it's all prescribed, so at three o'clock, everybody stops. Doesn't matter if you're on the street corner or if you're in a deli or wherever you're at. You're gonna, you know, drop and pray. Basically, that's the that's the idea. But here, what Jesus is pointing out is people that go to these places specifically with the intention of being seen by the crowd and maybe even working the crowd up as they pray, and the focus is on them. There's nothing wrong with praying at a major intersection. But if you're doing it there just to be seen by the people, then your prayer's all for naught. And see, the Pharisees, they were all concerned about their outer righteousness, so they were all concerned about who was going to see them praying. And that's what he says, that they may be seen by men. That's kind of the, the, the wrong audience. We shouldn't have to be seen by men in order to pray. That shouldn't be our driving factor. So many times, even in prayer meetings, people, you know, you say, well, you know, why didn't you pray? Well, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable. I could say a wrong word. Who cares? I mean, frankly, you're talking to God. You're not talking to the other people in the prayer circle. See, that's the problem with our prayer meetings. We think we're talking to each other when we go to prayer. So, okay, well, you know, let's bow our head. Well, you know, uh, okay, Lord, I just need to let everybody know. that. And we start talking to the other people, but we're talking like through God. It's the weirdest thing. I've heard people do it all the time. I've done it on occasion. We all do it on occasion. We have to get a little more serious about our prayer time. We have to realize that who are we talking to? 
You know, are we talking to God? Are we talking to each other? Are we trying to inform everybody in the group of a need that we have? Why don't we just inform God? And if they feel led to pray, then we can pray. You know, God knows what we need even before we ask anyway, right? So what's the big deal? I remember in the Baptist church growing up, you know, we used to have a Wednesday night prayer meeting or Sunday night prayer meeting. And, and uh, you know, we'd have like a half hour prayer meeting and probably 25 minutes of it was taking requests. Everybody, oh, yeah, okay, okay. Okay, well, we only got five minutes left, so I'll just bless everybody, okay? Father, we just pray for these requests tonight and let's go. Nobody prayed. They just kind of spouted off what they needed prayer for. And so we need to kind of redefine what, you know, prayer is and, and how it should be a factor in our life. And so it's, it's important that we, we, we look at that aspect of it. So we don't want to do it just to be seen by men. In verse 6, he says, but when you pray, and there's nothing wrong with praying publicly, but he says, when you pray, go into this in your room, your inner room, and when you shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you openly. Um, you know, that's our audience. You know, I remember a worship time that, that, I don't even know where it was, but I saw it on the web page somewhere, and uh, on, the, on the web, and, and they had a web page, and it said, the audience of one. And it was a worship and praise night, and that's what they called it, the audience of one. It wasn't about performing. It wasn't about, you know, seeing who. It's about coming and worshiping before one, and that is God. That should be our attitude when we come to prayer. It's about addressing God for who he is. And it doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter whatever. See, that's the neat dynamic about prayer. We all have an open door through Christ to the Heavenly Father, through prayer. And the Bible says that we should come before Him boldly. We shouldn't be cowering in the corner saying, you know, I'm just kind of shy and I don't know. We should come into the presence of God with a boldness in our heart. And so the idea of prayer is really communion with God. That's what it's about. And He has to be involved in that. If it's just you involved in your prayer, then that's not real biblical prayer, is it? You're just doing it because you feel you've got to get something off your chest or you know you express some concern or whatever. That's the wrong reason to pray. We should pray because we know that God will provide for our needs. I mean, do you ever think about it? This is something that is not our idea. It's not like, you know, they were Adam and Eve were just sitting around one day and saying, Hey, let's, you know, let's start praying. We'll start talking to God. No. This is God's idea. God invented prayer. God wants to have communion, fellowship, communication with us. And the more we have it, the stronger our relationship grows. And so it's a simple teaching here. It's not difficult. He just says, you know what? When you pray, you have to have the right attitude in your heart. Don't just do it to be seen in public. And he doesn't forbid public prayer, but it's the attitude of the heart once again. He says, but when you pray, go into your room. It has the idea of a store room or, or even maybe a safe room. You know, there's some houses today, these big <coughs> executives in their house, they have what they call a safe room. And, I mean, this thing is like totally uh, safe. You know, they've thought of everything, chemical attack, everything. And, you, you know, if there's something that happened, nuclear attack, you go to the safe room in, their, in your mansion or whatever in your house. Well, th- back then they had similar things. And it was kind of a storeroom, safe room. And that's the idea. You're going to somewhere out of view of the public because you know that prayer is just about you and God. 
And he says, you know what? If you're if you have a problem praying in public, go to your go to your private place. Go to the most secluded private place you could find, so you don't have any temptation to show off. Because sometimes, <clears throat> you know, you, you I'm sure you've been in churches, you've been in prayer meetings, <clears throat> where you wonder, you know, where people are coming from. You know, you're talking to somebody before the service, and you know, well, how you doing, brother Joe? Oh, I'm doing fine, and everything's great, and great, okay. And then you know, and then all of a sudden you see brother Joe up behind the pulpit and get ready to pray for the offertory. You see this little glean in his eye, and the voice that comes out is not brother Joe's. I mean, you don't know where this guy got this voice, but oh, heavenly Father, thou, and they start speaking in this King James English, and, and it's like they're putting on a performance. And it's like, what in the world is going on? You don't talk that way. Why do you have to pray that way? Do you think that impresses God? Because it doesn't. Do you think maybe you're trying to impress somebody else? Maybe. God's not concerned with that. He's concerned with our heart. See, if we can just get a grasp of that, you know, if we can just kind of understand that, that opens up the door to prayer. All of a sudden you're going, you know what, if God's not concerned, why should I be concerned about, you know, if I'm just sharing my heart with God and He's listening intently to every word I say, then He deserves my full attention. So do whatever it takes, Jesus is saying, to get the attention off yourself. It's not about you. So sometimes prayers need to happen in secret, away from God. And sometimes maybe you're the only person in the entire world that knows what you are praying for. Just you and God. That's what he says here. And he also goes on here, and he says, uh, when, when you've shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who is in the secret place, uh, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. Same formula that he uses for giving, prayer, and fasting. He just repeats it over and over. Okay, Don't do it just to be seen by men, but when you do it secretly, God will reward you openly. God wants to answer our prayers. Sometimes we think that he's some big Scrooge up there, just, you know, and we gotta beg him and plead him, and then, and then maybe he'll throw us a little, you know, something, you know, just to keep us going. That's not the kind of God we serve. We serve a God who's, who is, is more than willing to open up storehouses of blessing upon us. We'll just ask. The Bible says sometimes we don't have because we what? We ask not. We don't ask. Or we ask amiss. You know, we're praying for that brand new Cadillac, and God's saying, you know, oh, sorry, I, you know, you're not getting a new Cadillac, but you know, here's a Buick Regal or whatever. So, I mean, sometimes we have to kind of qualify our motivation and our heart before God as we pray. And if we're just praying for ourselves, we're not praying for others, we're not petitioning God further, then we need to stop and say, maybe you know, I'm just a little bit too much about myself here. Maybe I need to stop and, and be a little more God-focused, a little more other, others-focused in my prayer life. Because when, when you do it that way, when you have the right reward, he says he'll reward you openly. See, the neat thing about that is when that happens, what, who sees it? Not only you, but other people see it. What a glorious thing it is to pray for somebody and you tell your friends, hey, yeah, yeah, so-and-so is sick and we're praying for him. And then you can come back to them and say, yeah, you know what? Uh, they got healed. Praise God. Or you know what? They had a good report at the doctor or whatever it is. Those are all positive things that honor, give honor and glory to God, not ourselves. 
And so that's kind of how prayer should be. Well, let's look at the content of prayer. Because he says there in verse 7, he says, when you pray, don't use meaningless repetition. This is kind of interesting. And, um, you know, they fell short on who they were addressing. They were doing it to be seen by men when it should only be God as our focus. But when they, the things that they prayed were just meaningless. That's what the scripture says. They had no substance. They had no significant content whatsoever. He calls them vain repetitions, meaningless repetitions, as the Gentiles or as the pagans do. Now, he, he, he kind of sing, singles out here this idea of meaningless repetition. And see, in the time in which Jesus lived, and even today, there is a, a practice among a lot of pagan religions that that basically, and I would say even some branches of Christianity where this meaningless repetition in that word that he uses there has the idea of idle, thoughtless chatter. It's the Greek word, batalogeo. It sounds like a... In the English language, we call them onomatopoeias. It's an onomatopoeic word. In other words, it means, and you're going, what? It means kind of mimic a sound. Like you hear a little kid playing with a car and he's going, well, that's not a word. You know, you wouldn't say, okay, spell for you. It's not a word. It's a sound. Okay? Or an airplane. You know, that's a sound. You can't, you know, it's just kind of a sound that's representing something. It's meaningless. You can't really spell it out. That's kind of the idea here. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about, and that word even sounds like batalageo, batalageo. You could say that over and over again. Somebody think you're speaking in tongues or something, which is unfortunate, but that's another avenue that this is highlighted today in our Christian uh, faith. If you've ever heard individuals speak in what they call tongues, they think that they're talking to God and, and all that. And, and, you know, Corinthians, we can go through that at another time. But it's very interesting. That all, almost all the people I've heard speak in, quote, tongues, is what, what they call it, unknown language. It's, it's very repetitious. And it's, it's, it's the same thing over and over and over again. And it makes no sense to anybody. They're not words. They're just jibber-jabber. That's what they do. And you say, well, isn't that in the Bible? That's, well, it's, in the Bible it's known as a language. That's what the word means. A known language. It's not some gibberish that you make up. You can't teach somebody to speak in tongues. It's not biblical, but that's what they do. Take you in a little room and they say, just open your mouth and just kind of relax and just let your tongue flow. Just just talk like a baby and, and God will bless that. And that's I've, I've been in, in, in that situation. And, and I know that it's not from God. Well, they had the same problem back then. This vain repetition. They just repeat things over and over and over again. And so they had this this you know, kind of meaningless chatter going on. And God's saying, that's not honoring to me. Our prayer should be thought out. Our prayer should be something that we've thought about. We don't just, you know, 
like in the Old Testament, go before Baal and, you know, hear us, hear us, hear us. Or even in the New Testament when they were talking about uh, Demetrius, the, the silversmiths of Ephesus and all that stuff, they, they cried out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they did it for two hours, it said, hoping that he would answer. Well, he never did. Even today, many Buddhists, they'll, they'll spin these little wheels that they have prayers on. And they believe that each turn of the wheel sends a prayer to their God. Roman Catholics, they'll light prayer candles. And they believe somehow that that's a, a request that as long as that, prayer, that candle's lit, that, that continually ascends to God repeatedly over and over again. You think of the rosary. When you go through the rosary, you re, what are you doing? You're just repeating the Hail Mary and, and, and Our Father over and over and over and over again. It's meaningless chatter to so many hearts. And I think it falls that way on God's heart as well, on God's ears. So Jesus says, avoid the meaningless, repetitious chatter. He doesn't say avoid repetition. There's nothing wrong with going back to God repeatedly for the same request. See, some people say, oh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't ask God twice. No, that's not true. Jesus didn't forbid the repetition of genuine requests. You remember in the parable about the midnight visit of the neighbor, the persistent man, he was praised by Jesus as a model of our persistence before God in Luke 18. He says there in verses, uh, in Luke 18, he says, Now shall not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? See, there's nothing wrong with entreating God over and over and over again. Paul asked God three times to take away the thorn in the flesh. Finally, he said, no, deal with it. But he asked Him three times. In the Garden of Gethsemane, remember Jesus, He cried out, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. Not My will, but Your will. And then He prayed again, and He prayed again. Same thing, basically. So there's nothing wrong with repetition in our prayers, but here it has the idea that you're, you're just repeating just gibberish and you're also doing it just to be seen by people. So you're doing it for the wrong audience and you're also, you have no content to your prayer. Our, our, our content in our prayer should be thought out. That's what he says in, in verse 8. He says, therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. See, God doesn't have to be badgered and, and kind of bribed and all that kind of a stuff. He, he knows what we need before we even ask. Martin Luther said this, By our praying, we are instructing ourselves more than we are Him. <laughs> See, the purpose of prayer isn't just just inform or persuade God, but it's to come before Him sincerely, purposefully, consciously, and devotedly. I mean, sometimes you hear people pray, God, you know, I just, please give me more of your love. The Bible says that the love of Christ has been shed abroad in our hearts. You're not going to get any more love. God, please, you know, grant me patience or grant me this or grant me that or whatever. And you can go to verse after verse after verse where God has already granted that to us. But because we're ignorant, we're asking Him for it again. It'd be like handing me a cheeseburger and say, hey, and I say to you, hey, can I have a cheeseburger? <laughs> You're going, I just gave you a cheeseburger. Yeah, well, but can I have a cheeseburger? 
You say, that's ridiculous. But sometimes God gives us things. As a Christian, when we're born again, He gives us certain things. And maybe we're not aware of them or whatever, but then we continue to pray and we pray and we pray for these things. And God's saying, hey, dummy, you already got it. (laughs) Just open your eyes. Let me work in your life. So we have to be aware of what we're praying for. Prayer is sharing the needs and burdens and hunger of our hearts before our Heavenly Father who already knows what we need, but He wants us to ask Him anyway. He wants to hear us. He wants to commune with us more than we ever would with Him, but that's what He wants to do. And to pray in the right manner in a non-hypocritical way is to pray with a devout heart and with pure motives. And I think sometimes we don't pray and we don't even ask for prayer because we don't believe in prayer. I mean, we believe in it, but we don't practice it. And so we just feel, well, whatever. God wants us to petition Him for things. God wants us to, you know, when we're in need, to let people know to pray. Because when God answers that prayer, who gets the glory? He does. He always repays our sincere devotion with a gracious response. I'll close with this. D.L. Moody once felt so kind of just blessed by God in his life that he prayed this prayer. God, stop. Wouldn't you like to get to a point in your prayer life where you're going, God, I can't handle this anymore. Stop. It's too much. You're just blessing me too much, God. Could that happen? Sure it could. If we pray. If we go to Him and and we ask Him, hey, not my will, but Your will be done. Make Yourself real in my life. Allow my prayers to be in alignment with Your will and allow those prayers to come to pass. He could smother us with all sorts of blessings. We just go to Him and ask. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we ask that You would... uh, Teach us how to pray as, as your disciples asked you. Lord, I pray that we would be a praying people, a praying church. Lord, we got a long way to go. But Father, I pray that you would uh, teach each one of us what prayer is. That it's, it's not just saying a bunch of words, but it's really communing with you. It's expecting, excuse me, you to work in our lives and expecting to see the blessings of God flow down upon us. Lord, would it be that we could get to the point where we would say, God, stop! Too much! Lord, we ask that You would minister Your Word to our hearts. Pray for each person here this morning. If I just ask that if there's one here that doesn't know You, Lord, then I pray that their first prayer would be a prayer of faith. That they would cry out to You and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, help me to live a life that's honoring, that's glorifying to You. Lord, I know I don't have any righteousness in and of myself. My my heart's wicked, just like Your Word says. It's full of sin. And Your Word says that I need to come to You out of faith, believing that You died on the cross, that You were buried, that You rose on the third day. And You did that for my to cover my sin, to, to pay for my sin, because I can't pay for it myself. That's a prayer that God will answer. He will save you this morning if you cry out to Him and ask you to touch your life. 
Lord, we just thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.